Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Natasha Pulley on her new novel, The Half-Life of Valeri Kay. Natasha Pulley's first novel, The Watchmaker of Filigree Street, was a Sunday Times bestseller, won a Betty Trask Award, and was shortlisted for the Authors Club Best First Novel Award. Her second novel, The Bedlam Stacks, was shortlisted for the Royal Society of Literature's Encore Award, and long-listed for the Walter Scott Prize, while subsequent novels, The Lost Future of Pepper Harrow and The Kingdoms, were published to widespread critical acclaim. And incidentally, The Kingdoms is just recently out in paperback as well. Natasha's latest novel, which we're going to talk about today, is The Half-Life of Valeri Kay. Natasha, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you so much. I'm just so pleased to be here again. Describe for us The Half-Life of Valeri Kay then. So it follows a scientist who has until recently been imprisoned uh, in a labour camp in Siberia until one day after many years, he's kind of given a tap on the shoulder and told that he's going to be transferred where nobody can tell him. But he's bundled into a car and then bundled onto a plane and then bundled into another car. And when he arrives at this extraordinary place, which is in the middle of this wasted forest, he realises that it's something to do with nuclear contamination in the ground. But all is not what the scientists at the local laboratory are saying. Things are much worse and much stranger. It's all based on a real place. And many of the things that happened to Valeri have happened to real people. So it's definitely 10% made up, but 90% of it is true. Well, we're going to come back to that. A little bit later on. But first of all, I just wanted to say that this is, it's a little bit of a departure from your previous novels. We talked before when we spoke about the kingdoms, about how uh, a lot of your works are speculative science, like steampunk, whereas this is, you know, very much set, obviously, in the, um, in the time period as well. So just tell us something about that. It is an extraordinary departure for me. And I completely shocked myself because when I started writing this, I thought I was going to do a speculative fiction novel, as I have always done. And I kept writing and I kept writing and I kept waiting for the magic element to appear. And it didn't and it didn't. And I sort of finished a draft and went, have I accidentally written a thriller? And it turns out that I have. But the reason that that happened, I realised, is that the way that you build a magic system 
and the way that you build absolutely nutty, extraordinary science like radiation and what radiation does are two very, very similar things. You have to build it in the same way and it has the same function in the story. It makes things unpredictable and extraordinary and weird. And unless you know a lot about physics and radiation already, I'm hoping that a lot of it will come as a surprise because when I was researching it, it came as a gigantic surprise to me. Any um, advanced science is indis- indistinguishable from magic, as, um, as as somebody said. I can't quite remember who it was. It was obviously Clark. <laughs> it was obviously Clark. There you go. Um, so tell us something more about who Valery Kolkanov is. So Valery is from Leningrad, which is now St. Petersburg. And he's had what I think today we consider to be a terrible life, but was entirely standard in the period that I'm writing about, which is the 1960s. So by the time the story starts, he's in his early 40s. He's spent six years in the gulag. This is not as unusual as it sounds. Alexander Solzhenitsyn worked out, and I don't know if he was right, but I kind of think that he was. He worked out that at some point, the NKVD, which is the KGB in their older jackets, had arrested about a quarter of the population of Leningrad at some point. So Valeri is in a minority, but it's a very big minority in being sent to the Gulag. He hasn't done anything wrong, but he survives. He also survives the siege of Leningrad. He survives World War II. He survives um, the early setting up of the Soviet Union as a child. So he's had a really tumultuous life. And one of the things that I found really important in this book was to not let him ever become bleak person. So he's actually quite a strange funny, incredibly, well, pig-headedly cheerful person, which is very much at odds sometimes with the subject matter. But that's purposeful, and I really hope people will see why I did that. He's out of the gulag quite quickly at the beginning of the story, but he's sort of spirited away from there. But then we do get flashbacks as we go through the book to, to his life there. So tell us something about that system and what he would have experienced. Sure. So the gulag system was a prison camp system. And there are amazing scholars who have talked about this for decades and still disagree why the gulag system became so vast. The theory that I'm convinced by is that it was a giant source of free labour. Looking at prison records now and looking at scholarship around it, what's very clear is that people were arrested more or less at random, basically for doing nothing. There are cases where people are arrested because their next door neighbor dobbed them in because they didn't return a coat on time or a saw or a hammer. It's stupid stuff like that. So it was very easy to be arrested and convicted. And one of the reasons that the Soviet Union could build gigantic projects like nuclear reactors very quickly was that they used the labor of what they called zirks, which is prison labors, prisoners. So I think that's why it was. But the environment of the camps could vary enormously. If you were a prisoner scientist or a prisoner engineer, you might be working at actually quite a high tech facility in Moscow or Leningrad, building secret components for telephones. And that doesn't sound like what we think of the Gulag at all. Or there's the more classic image that we know very well now from books like A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, which is Siberia in the winter, minus 60 degrees. 
And there is a very, very, very famous camp called Kalimar, which is where Valeri starts. And it is at the top of what was colloquially known as the Bone Road because so many people died to build it. So it has it has these extremes. At one end, you're a prisoner, but almost comfortable. And at the other end, it's absolutely horrendous. And the life expectancy, if you were sent to work in the mines, was about four months. You mentioned the time period. This is is in the main. The main thrust of the story is set in 1963, although there are there are flashbacks and eventually flash forwards. But um, tell us what's going on in the Soviet Union in 1963. Right, absolutely. So 1963, Stalin is dead to begin with. Stalin has been dead for ten years. Um, we're under new management. It's to some extent a new era. We're in a sort of era that's often called the thaw, which is where you could start to say things that you absolutely couldn't say 11 years before this. You weren't going to be arrested for so much, but it's still incredibly strict, incredibly difficult. And one of the things that I'm interested in in this period is the Soviet nuclear shield, which is a series of closed secret cities that honestly, if you look on a map at the period, they they just don't appear at all. They're numbered rather than named properly. And in these cities, scientists and specialists and military people were tasked with creating the components that made uh, nuclear submarines, nuclear weapons, and even the radioactive isotopes that powered things like satellites. And this is just, for me, this was extraordinary because I had no idea that all this existed. I'm the Soviet Union did collapse in my lifetime, but I was, I think I was about two. So I had no sort of firsthand memory of this. And as soon as I started talking to my parents about it, they sort of said, oh, of course, of course they did this. But for me, it was new. And that was one of the reasons, the existence of the shield in these incredibly secret places. That was one of the reasons that I wanted to centre on the 1960s. So City 40, which is the city by the um, the power plant and the research facility, where Valeri ends up is located. So describe for us then what your City 40 is like. So City 40, as I wrote it, was based as much as I could base it on the real City 40. It is a real place. Today it's more commonly called Ozyersk, but that's a code name as well. Ozera just means the lake. Um, So Ozyersk is like Lake Town. So that's not a real name either. It got its name, City 40, because that's a P.O. box number. Its full name was Chelyabinsk 40. So if you wanted to send mail to this closed city that didn't officially exist, you sent the mail to a P.O. box in Chelyabinsk, uh, which is about 90 kilometers away, to P.O. box 40. These cities, City 40 included, were kept really, really well. They're full of new buildings. They had beautiful sports facilities. They even had theatres. The nuclear agency in the Soviet Union even advertised them. They, they didn't say what they were making or what they or where they were, but you can watch adverts for these places on YouTube, and it's absolutely fascinating because the factor that unites them all is that they're all lovely in comparison to those prefab buildings that we really associate with Stalin era Moscow. And you could get stuff there that you couldn't get anywhere else, like chocolate and bananas and really nice cigarettes and things like this. And it was it was all compensation for keeping the secrets and doing very, very difficult jobs. So in some ways, 
these places were kind of weird, tiny, utopia-looking things that hid very, very dark secrets. And again, that's something that really drew me to them. And I think you mentioned at, at one point in your city that there is like 100,000 people living there in the city. Yeah. But there wouldn't have been 100,000 people working in this base. So like, what are all these other people doing? So it's a functioning city, right? So there's all the army personnel. There's all the families of the scientists who work at the base. There are six nuclear reactors. That's huge. Plus two giant science labs. There's everyone who has to work around that. So school teachers, security, KGB, normal police, people who run the theatres, people who run the shops. So there there were that, that, I think, anyway, from the documents that I've read, I think there were that many people. It's a big place. And we won't go into what has happened and what is happening at the base in the book, but it's it's based on real incidents and disasters that happened that I guess you know obviously everybody's heard of Chernobyl but there are obviously other things that that happened like nuclear incidents that have you know that have been covered up so is this based on anything in particular? It absolutely is and actually it's based on a giant nuclear accident that was the same size as Chernobyl it happened in 1957 in a region called Kushtim you can look it up it's called the Kushtim disaster It's left, and I I use a present tense on purpose, it's left a giant radioactive trace across the eastern Urals in Russia. It runs right up from close to the border with Kazakhstan, way up to the Arctic. Uh, It is very, very serious. The reason that they were able to cover it up in 1957 in the way that they could not with Chernobyl in 1986 is that City 40, which is in Kushtim, is nowhere near any Western countries. So it wasn't tripping Western radiation detectors, Western dosimetry. Whereas Chernobyl, of course, is in Ukraine, which means that it's much closer to the West. And when you consider that a radioactive cloud from accidents like these spreads at about 2,000 kilometres at least, you can really see why the West picked it up very quickly after Chernobyl. But City 40 is more than 2,000 kilometres away from the nearest Western country. So yeah, it stayed deeply secret. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Natasha Polly, and we're talking about her latest novel, The Half-Life of Valeri Kay. And Natasha, I want to talk about a couple of the other main characters in the story and what their inspiration was, maybe. And um, first of all, when Valeri first gets to, to City 40, um, he's reacquainted with his former mentor, Dr. Rosovskia, um, who's a, a great, glamorous creation. Tell us something about who she is. So Dr. Rysovskaya is based on a real person. There was a Dr. Rysovsky at this facility at this time, and he was indeed married to another doctor called Dr. Rysovskaya. So I thought, well, firstly, it's a great name. And secondly, one of the things that I find fascinating about the Soviet Union is that uh, women could occupy very senior positions uh, much earlier than they possibly could in the West. So, you know, the, the first woman in space is Valentina Tereshkova. And she was she was way earlier than anybody from the West. She was she was early 60s. So I really wanted to include one of these really powerful, interesting women. And Dr. Resovskaya is that person. Um, she knows everything. She's older than Valeri. She's incredibly clever. She curates the whole project at City 40 in the book. And she's the one who rescues him from the gulag. She's the one who puts his name down and says, I need this person. So right from the beginning of the novel, Valeri feels very indebted to her, even though she might well be lying to him. And the other main character I wanted to talk about was, at this point, we're also introduced to um, to Shenkov, who is the uh, the KGB lead at the, um, the sort of head of security at the plant. Tell us what you can about him. Shenkov, uh, Konstantin Shenkov, As you say, he's a KGB officer. And the reason that I wanted to write about someone like that was that I think it's very easy now to look back and say, oh, all KGB people must have been evil. It was dreadful in the same way that we want to say that all Nazis were evil. But what I really wanted to think about was how do you become that person who ends up arresting people in the middle of the night and taking their kids to separate orphanages? What is it like to have to live like that? And what impact does it have on you? Because not all of those people could possibly have started off evil and not all of them could possibly have meant to do bad things all the way through. I mean, the KGB 100% had its fair share of absolute psychopaths, but there must have been normal people among them as well living in these incredibly difficult, restrictive, surveyed circumstances. And I wanted wanted to explore that a bit and have a think about it and try and write someone who was good in the midst of all that. Just going back to to Valeri and um, Dr. Rosovskia for a moment, there's a period of time where they both work. And this, this is ultimately the root of why Valeri has ended up in the um, in the gulag in the first place, but for a period of time when he's a student and she's his supervisor, they both work in Berlin. So just tell us about this episode a little. Yeah. So again, uh, one of the things I was fascinated by is how can you be a good person when you're surrounded by a system that's pushing you to do exactly the opposite? So I wanted to put Valeri into a situation where it would be very easy to do the wrong thing and he does do the wrong thing he and Dr Rezovskaya are in Berlin on basically like a sponsored gap year where they work at a German lab and they end up working at um, the Institute for Racial Hygiene which is where Joseph Mengele was working and doing some experiments unspeakable experiments on twins 
And this is where Valeri really first comes up against the morality of human trials, human testing um, with radiation. And he is horrified by it. And Dr. Resovskaya tells him off for it because she wants him to have a really good career. And in order to do this, he needs to participate in human trials. And he does. And he carries the guilt for that for the rest of his life and well well into the series of events that's explored in the novel. I wanted to ask about, there's only a very short period of time where we're in Moscow in the book, but we do see other cities as well. And, And I just wanted to talk about your research into what the cities were like at that period of time because there's a really vivid portrait of of their trip to Moscow. Yeah, it's um it's much easier to research Moscow than than other places in Russia because obviously Moscow was not a secret city. It wasn't closed. You could go and visit. And so as well as archival footage and things like that, um I managed to interview a couple of people who had lived there in the period that I was interested in. And I think that the, it has iconic images, doesn't it? Like, I mean, of course, there's there's the Kremlin and those bright red walls. Um, and there's also the weirdly orange trolley buses, the trams, which were so famous at the time. And then Soviet cars were quite different to ours and only in a few very <laughs> limited colours. But it was really, really fascinating to to look into it. And my favourite story that I was told by somebody I interviewed, he was a student in Moscow in the time that Valeri is in Moscow. And he said, uh, because he was English, when he arrived, he was he was followed around by an obvious KGB officer for the entire time he was there. So like a year and a bit, I think. But, and this I thought was the best thing I'd heard for ages, he got very, very ill toward the end of his time in Moscow. And um, he couldn't really get out of bed. And after a while, there's this tentative little tap on the door and it's it's the KGB officer. And he says, oh, I've brought you some oranges. I saw that you hadn't come out for a while, <laughs> which I thought was brilliant and just kind of not the expected thing at all. You mentioned a little while ago that women in the Soviet Union could ascend to you know, high levels of, of science and, and were pioneers. And there's a moment in the book... I think during that trip to Moscow, I was reminded of it. It's, it's a couple of years ago now, at least a couple of years ago now, but um, we talked on this show about a book by Christine Godsey called um, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. And there's a point where, where I think Valeri mentions that women were now free to choose, under the Soviet system, women could choose men who were interesting and because everybody earned the same amount of money that you, you know it wasn't like you could be rich and then just like get any woman you wanted to women were free to choose and i was taken right back to that book then and i just i just wanted to talk a bit about that idea the freedoms that were offered to to women under that system definitely and i think there are two sides to this coin one side is Definitely. Women were a lot freer under this system in many ways. So if you have a look at Soviet propaganda posters, of which there are many, and some of them are fantastic, like just the graphic design is amazing. Some of them really plug women's rights and they show women becoming chemists, women becoming astronauts, and they're designed to inspire young girls to go into those professions, which is, of course, not what the West was doing at the time. We had women on posters who were really good housewives. So in some ways, it was much better for women under socialism. The other side of that coin, though, is that what 
people wanted to achieve in theory was not what was achieved in practice. In practice, of course, it was still very difficult for women. In practice, you cannot destroy a thousand years of patriarchy within 20 years of a revolution. It didn't work. Not everyone cooperated. There were communal kitchens, but it was still women who did the cooking. So there were lots of ways in which this didn't work, but there were lots of ways in which it did. And then conversely, I'd like to talk about what life was like for queer people under the Soviet Union. So Russia has always had a horrifying record with regard to the rights of anybody who is not big, strong and orthodox. You would have had a horrifying time, no matter which gender you belong to or neither. So it would be incredibly important to keep this very, very secret. It would not go down well and people were horribly persecuted for it. The Soviet Union was as terrible at that as Russia is now. And to finish it off, can I get you to read us a bit? Absolutely. So the bit that I'd like to read is not right at the very beginning, but close to the beginning. And it's after Valeri has been pulled out of the gulag, he's been flown to another city and then put in a taxi. And he has no idea where the taxi is going, but the taxi driver says, it's going to be an hour or so, so settle in. And he is exhausted after this huge long journey and after being in a gulag for six years and he falls asleep. And this is what happens next. He woke up because the taxi had accelerated. It pressed him back into the seat and then slung him forward as the driver changed gear. Confused, he looked behind them and then jumped when the driver snapped his fingers at him. The man didn't speak, but he pointed to a sign coming up fast now. Attention, Do not stop for the following 30 kilometres. Proceed at the fastest possible speed for your vehicle. They shot past it at 80 kilometres an hour. Because of the poison in the ground, the driver said. Valeri did not know what to say to that. Coming up on their left now were the skeletons of burnt out houses. The roofs were just blackened sticks and all that was left of the structures were stone chimneys. Chimney after chimney set at angles to each other. The houses would have been wide-spaced with big gardens, for crops may be in animals. Grass and weeds grasped at the ruins. In another few years, they would cover them and nobody passing would know what the oddly shaped hillocks had been. It was a bomb, the driver told him. You know, an atom bomb from the Americans? Destroyed everything. All one night. Boom. Valeri looked up. This damage is too widespread for a bomb. Why are the houses burnt then? I don't know, he said unhappily. On the right, a blasted church soared by, scraps of gold still winking on its broken domes. Beyond it was an old brick factory, the rafters poking through the roof like ribs. I'm telling you, bomb! The driver made a bomb noise and opened his hand to sketch a mushroom cloud. Yep, we're coming into proper rust country now. Valeri wondered what that meant. So I've been talking to Natasha Pulley. We've been talking about her new novel, The Half-Life of Valeri Kay, which is out in the UK now from Bloomsbury. Natasha, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Not at all. Thanks so much for having me on the show. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. 
The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.